Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Fode Diop, Bitcoin coder from Senegal. We talk about the CFA franc, their colonial history, and the injustice of the monetary policy. Fode also tells us what it's like on the ground in Senegal versus France and the U.S. Fode job. How's everything going, man? <laughs> oh man, everything is everything is beautiful, man. I think like there's like doom and gloom in the world right now, but I always try to remind people that life is beautiful, man. We are we are alive, we're kicking, we're just working hard, trying to take care of our families and stuff. So life is beautiful, man. Man, I love this optimistic energy <laughs> yes, that yes, you sir. got here. Yes, <laughs> Where are you at right now? I'm actually in uh, Miami right now, getting ready to head to uh, West Africa right now. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons I brought you on the show mm -hmm. because you definitely come from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your background, where you grew up and what it was like and so on. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yes, I was born in Dakar in a small uh, city called Dakar in West Africa. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, Dakar is the capital of Senegal and it's the northmost western point in Africa, as a matter of fact. So flying mm -hmm. from Dakar to New York is, on, is, is pretty much only a seven and a half, seven and a half actually hour flight. And uh, mm -hmm. like it's a very diverse, was a uh, French colony back in the days. We received our independence in April 4th of 1960. So no, no, not even that long ago. And mm -hmm. we've had about uh, three presidents. And it's one of the few countries in West Africa that has never been taken over by the military. So we've actually mm -hmm. always had a democratic uh, elected president. I grew up in middle class, I would say, family. My dad was a math teacher in my high school. And my mom was a homemaker. And she raised us, me and my brother, basically two of us. And I had a chance to go and study in Europe initially, actually, in France, in a city called Metz, the German border, mm. because I actually mm. spoke German when I was in high school. But I ended up just luckily going to the U.S. in 94 to study computer science and to play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so a lot there. But, yes, uh, but you grew up in Senegal, which is a fairly young country. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. it's... Uh, it's maybe 62 years mm -hmm. old. Mm -hmm. What's the history before 1960? Like, what's the colonial history and so Sure. On? So, well, as you probably already know, mm -hmm. Africa was pretty much divided and uh, shared by the European conquerors, I would say, or, mm -hmm. you know, colonial powers. So this, a mm -hmm. lot of it actually happened um, after slavery, I guess, was abolished. And they were still trying to figure out a way to, to get resources and take advantage of the continent, pretty much. So they split it between themselves and, like, just... Took, took a pencil and drew up the map and say, okay, well, this part is for Portugal, this part is for France, this part is for Spain and, and whatnot. And Senegal basically was one of those um, French colonies in West Africa, which is one of 15, I believe, actually, one of 14, because there's another one mm. uh, on, on the other side. And yeah, mm. so we were just under French ruling like uh, for a long time. We were not really truly, again, independent. So the French came and tried to have this, this thing called the politics of assimilation, which means that uh, they mm. tried to basically make the colony like as an extension of France, per se. Mm. So we mm -hmm. adopted French as local uh, official language, even though we have our own native languages, like, like for instance, myself, I speak Wolof, which is my native language. But, mm. you know, in, in order to be actually able to go to school and to study and all, all those things, then I have to basically study, learn French. Mm. Which is actually quite actually quite of a actually hurdle, I would say, if uh, for getting educated. So because you are pretty much getting educated in a language you don't master, and it's very very difficult, like for the majority of the population, to finish school, unfortunately, in West Africa, right? So the French mm. language is very difficult, and trying to actually study complex like topics like uh, mathematics or physics or chemistry, like I did in high school, could be actually also like quite quite complex in another language. So yes, so then there were like wars and all these things. And at some point, I believe in the end of 1945, in, in the Second World War, 
like France realized that they couldn't really like hold these these small African countries like as a colonies. So what they did was like they pretty much pulled out. But before they pulled out, they made sure that they pretty much left two things behind, which is basically the French language and the French currency or African currency controlled by the French called the Franc CFA. And I know, mm. like, I went a little bit over actually what happened during that period, but that's kind of how it mm. was. So we were we, we were basically under colon like uh, under this French occupation for a very long time, uh, under mm. like Charles de Gaulle. And then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we actually even like our some some of our uh, military went to help French um, France, sorry, fight uh, during the Second World War against actually mm. against the Germans and all mm. that stuff. And then, yeah, so yeah, it was just a pretty much how do you say it? like a, a exploitative kind of a, a relationship, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Senegal has, as with many African countries, this mm-hmm. history of colonialism, mm-hmm. which was, you know, very. I don't know how brutal it was or whatever, mm-hmm. but you had a military occupation mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. How many years was that? Just, uh, just oh, to get a man. feel. That is actually yeah. a good question. Unfortunately, I don't have it exactly in, in, in my mm-hmm. in my head right now. But mm-hmm. in the nineteen sixty, and then I would say, I mean, that was a long time, man. Actually, from that's a good question. I have to like, I have to look it up. But mm-hmm. like, quite actually, quite a while. Okay, but you had, uh, you know, basically physical imperialism yes, for a long yes. time, and then and then this thing called CFA yes. currency mm-hmm. comes along. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I don't think most people know about the CFA, yes. and that's very interesting. Yes, so the CFA is a, the currency we actually control is currently have in West Africa. Actually, and actually, there's two variations of it in with two central banks. But let's actually, for the sake of simplicity, let's just say that actually these fourteen, fifteen countries share the same currency. So this mm. money was is printed by France, is made by France, and it's part of the colonial pact. Actually, when France mm. left in, in in the sixties, so what they did was like they said, okay, well, for us to kind of help you run your countries better and like you know control, make sure you control corruption and everything else. So they offered basically this colonial pact where they will provide the money for these countries. So to this mm. day, in twenty in two thousand and twenty two, this money actually that's that used in West Africa is made and printed in the south of France. Then it's actually mm. distributed in these African countries. So what it mm. is is that actually when these countries basically individually sell goods, let's say in the in a in a global market, let's say they say oil or they say uh, minerals or some coltan or like stuff that's just used within your cell, uh, mobile devices, then they get paid international currency, most likely actually the U.S. dollar. So because they cannot pay their own people with a U.S. dollar or like pay the salaries of their constituents and, and their citizens, so this money basically is sent to France. And France basically holds the majority of this money as a deposit almost or as a guarantee. And then in return, it prints this money and gives it to these African countries. And that's actually mm-hmm. really how it works right now. And then mm-hmm. to make even actually like matters worse, like so we have like two, like I said again, two central banks, uh, one in, I believe, in Cameroon and one in Senegal, actually, my capital itself. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. in the central banks, for the longest time, there was a, a, a person sitting on a board from France who was like supposed, actually supposedly uh, oversee issuance and, and, the, and the management of this particular money in these countries. And for the longest time, actually, it, this is actually, well, it's been a problem, actually. I was at the longest time. It's, it's been a problem from day one because a lot of people recognize that this is the money, basically, this is like monetary imperialism and it's a way for France mm-hmm. to still control the ex-colonies, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. we can talk more mm-hmm. about it if you would like. Mm-hmm. Definitely more. But all right, so let's get this straight. You have 14 mm-hmm. countries mm-hmm. in Africa. I would say 15, yes, who, 15 actually. 
Yes. Oh, 15. Yes. Who use the same currency, which mm-hmm. can be useful, mm-hmm. but it's essentially controlled by France. Yes, exactly. And it, it's called the CFA, the Central Franc Africa or something exactly. like that. Or, yes. Actually, okay. actually, actually, it used to even have a worse name in France, in French, in French mm-hmm. actually, back in the days. But like, because mm-hmm. of the uproar, they basically changed the name to CFA. But it actually, it was, it used to be called something like way more actually derogatory, like basically mm-hmm. the colonies of France, like the money for the colonies <laughs> of France in Africa, actually. It would, literally, that's what they translate to in French back in the days. Then they changed it to the CFA to make it like a little bit more like diplomatic or you know mm. a little bit more uh, PC, like politically correct, basically. Well, it probably had such a bad reputation yes. <laughs> they had to change the name exactly, or something. Exactly, exactly, yes. So the uh, money, yes. Yeah, we know this from all coin land yes. where, uh, you know, coins will change their names. Change their names like, for whatever, exactly, for whatever reason, right? Yeah. Yep, so that's what they have. Uh, so this uh, money is made, again, yes. So it's actually used by these 15 countries, yes. Okay, so so they use it for commerce, mm-hmm. but to go over exactly what happened, mm-hmm. 1960, you get your independence, mm-hmm. but as part of that independence, mm-hmm. they said we'll even give you some money, but you have to use our uh, use the money that we give you exactly. and not any other money. Exactly, and actually, and this they learned because this was pretty much like created in uh, December of 1955 by uh, General Charles de Gaulle. And if you mm-hmm. think about it, actually through history, you realize that actually that the French learned this like via the Germans, like you know, like mm-hmm. during uh, during the fascist days, because when France was under, under occupation by the Germans back in uh, during the Second World War, when Germany came, they pretty much took away their money and gave them a specially denominated Deutsche Mark. The German, mm. the German currency itself, right? So France had to had to basically use this money. They had to pay the taxes to the Germans with this money and so forth. So I believe actually mm. the French learned actually like through this process like how they can pretty much like do the same thing to these African countries to basically keep them in servitude because if you control someone's money, you pretty much control that person's livelihood and you pretty much control this country's economy. Because at the end of the day, again, money is just pretty much technology. And what it is is like once you have like data on this technology, you have actually way much more control over this uh, a particular group of people or nations basically. So that's how they created it. Well, it's not just uh, France that learned it. I think the U.S. learned it, too, with with Bretton Woods and so on. Uh, It's a common pattern. And it's interesting that you characterize this Mm -hmm. as sort of like monetary imperialism because Mm – you did have physical imperialism. Mm-hmm. We all know that how expensive that can mm-hmm. be. You mm-hmm. ha- you have to have like a whole, you know, infrastructure of administrators and so exactly. on. And, you know, exactly. a military occupation. Exactly. I assume there were a lot of soldiers and you know yes. people from yes. France and, yes. and stuff in, in yep. Senegal before yep. the. Before you know, nineteen sixty. Right? Exactly. So actually, before nineteen sixty, they used to have like a huge base actually there in uh, in Senegal, and actually also mm-hmm. like the base there actually the, the the original base has like a really dark story as matter of fact. I can like mm-hmm. touch on that really mm-hmm. quick. So what happened mm-hmm. was uh, a bunch of Senegalese soldiers uh, who went to war during the World War to help the French like fight the Germans. In the end, they, they did not get paid or actually did not get properly remunerated. And when they asked mm-hmm. for it, they got gunned down in the in the fort like that was in Senegal itself. They really literally wow. killed these veterans on Senegalese soil because they asked for a better pay or like the money that they, they were supposed to be owed during the Second World War. And something that's, that's, that's put under the rugs, but it's really one of the darkest stories actually of Senegal, like within the corporation of like uh, uh, French uh, armies and, and whatnot, right? But to, again, to go back to answer your question, so yes, they used to have like a huge presence, but they also like they had this presence like, throughout all the colonies in the world, actually, most of them in Africa, mm-hmm. obviously, right? But they realized that that would be like a really expensive endeavor to maintain for the long term. It's almost like the U.S having all these basically military bases all over the world itself, right? You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge, like, um, financial demand to maintain and upkeep and, like, really, you know, like, deliver stuff to, like, to, to, like, to these places. So, ultimately, they decided to actually, like, really pull themselves back. But what they did, actually, I felt like that was very detrimental to these African countries is that 
I feel like our education system is one of the worst in the world, I think, as a matter of fact, mm. right? Because I believe that the French left it there behind like that exactly because they wanted mm-hmm. to train the folks they can control and folks actually mm. that would pretty much like help and maintain the, the, the elite status of this French thing actually, right? Mm. Or this French, like, you know, how do you say, ideal per se, right? Because then mm-hmm. what happens is you have like, a, again, to make it simplified, you have in the nation, you have a group of people that speak French and then that basically group of people actually become the elite of the particular society, right? Because then mm. when you don't basically speak French, you are considered like illiterate or you are considered not part of the, the elite who can like really express and, and write and, and speak in this particular foreign language itself, right? Which is like really horrible itself. So I feel like mm. our basically schools there, they, they don't train engineers. They basically train subservient folks actually unfortunately mm. Mm. well that's uh, that seems to be sort of like a hidden cost of monetary imperialism mm-hmm. is uh is sort of like this you know like lack of using the human capital that's there yes, and, yes. you know yeah. I, we, it definitely seems that way but mm-hmm. i want to focus on something that you just said mm-hmm. which is very interesting mm-hmm. to me you know there is this sort of like social stratification where you're like you have the french people in france who are you know at the top And then you have the Senegalese people that speak French, which Mm -hmm. are in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Senegalese people that don't speak French, who who are sort of like at the bottom. Exactly. And like, you know, your story even about like, uh, you know, them gunning down, you know, you know, soldiers that fought for France (laughs) during World War II. I mean, it reflects this sort of like very stratified social ladder Mm -hmm. that that kind of gets imposed on and you know obviously it's a it's kind of a holdover for colonials you know from the physical colonial era mm-hmm. but it seems to have uh continued through the monetary imperialist era and i think what you're arguing is that the monetary imperialism is just as effective in keeping sort of that you know the stratification of you know social you know class or whatever yes. in the country continuing to keep that. Yes, yes, yes. It makes me like really sad, man, because when I go home, sometimes I see kids, you know, like I'm talking about like black African kids, Senegalese kids, right? Mm -hmm. That speak French like they were like in the middle of Paris or something like that. And you can tell actually their families raise them like that. They don't even want them to speak the local language. You know, which mm. is really sad, right? Because then you have like these people who are, like basically like pursue again this European ideal and they live in the middle of Africa. Like which mm. is like to me like this like really delusion this, this delusional mm-hmm. thing that's, that's happening. And, and again, it's like the, really the vestige of like colonialism and all this stuff that basically this, this luggage we're carrying from the French folks again, like unfortunately, right? But it's there. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, yeah, I, I see little kids, little tiny kids running around, but they're speaking the French of like, they're speaking the French of like people who grew up in Paris. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Which actually, which means mm-hmm. that their parents basically, maybe they actually get educated in Europe or in France, but they basically mm-hmm. like really raise them kids, raise the kids to be like that. They even have this diction, to have this accent, this French accent, like in the middle of Africa. You know, and actually, you know, in the end, so I don't know. So I hope that they want to do it because they want maybe the kids to speak like mm-hmm. another language better to help them like financially or whatnot, or like maybe to benefit them in the long term. But if it's just like to like really bring these French ideals on, on African continent, I think it's a huge mistake and doing the disservice to the communities. Well, I, it's all sort of like the cultural thing. Yes, right? yeah. The monetary imperialism necessarily kind of adds like a cultural imperialism of like language and things like that because. 
you know, the people at the top speak a certain way, look a certain way. So you want to imitate them as much as possible in order to get those same positions. Exactly. Because there's this money flowing from them to you. Exactly, exactly. It actually kind of ties in a little bit again to the uh, Cantillian effect, you know, because Mm -hmm. what it is is like then the people who are the closest to the money and who is the closest to the money? Well, it's the people who speak this particular language. You know, mm. and it's, <laughs> you know, so they're they're really seeking. They're they're going for rent seeking. Rent seeking, like exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to work. Rent yeah, seeking yeah, is so yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So describe to me sort of like the dynamics of the culture there then uh, as a result of this monetary imperialism, this sort of like social stratification, and you know, obviously a lot of people sort of like almost conforming to the French ideal, not necessarily because they agree with it, mm-hmm. but because it benefits them economically. So they end up doing things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise do. It's just sort of like they're bribed into becoming more French or something like that. Exactly. That's exactly. You know, like, yeah. exactly. They're kind of bribed into like, into this particular, you know, I would say, not only say way of life, but in this particular, like part of a group per se, right? Because the group that mm-hmm. benefits again, like uh, the most are like out of, this, out of this economy because they speak this particular language, the laws are pretty mm-hmm. much mimic actually the legal system in France itself. So we don't even have mm-hmm. our, our, kind of our own legal system. And when you get in trouble or when you actually do like business dealings and all these things and you don't particularly speak this language, actually this, the business is made in, then it's actually, I mean, conducted in, then it's actually really complicated itself, right? It makes it like really, really mm-hmm. super complicated. So for me, again, like the money is complicated again too like and it's also like tied like to the vestige of like this ex-colonial power or whatnot right but the idea to me overall is that we need to figure out a way to give uh, even to like not even how, how can i say this we need to like bring the the continent again to the source which is kind of complicated because we don't really know how these two things that are kind of like it's almost like when you when you use a hash function or you make a smoothie there's no way for you to go back to the it's not, <laughs> Uh, you know what sure. I'm saying? Like, saying one-way right? function, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a one-way function, right? So now we have, uh-huh. even our own language is like fully like like integrated with, with French words. So it's more like Creole now, you know? It's like Wolof, mm-hmm. but with like a lot of French and a lot of these things. But how do we go back to actually initial values? Like how do we go back? Not to say like, how do we go back to like before the French got there? But how do we basically reclaim our identity by reclaiming mm-hmm. our money to be able to like reclaim our sovereignty because without actually us reclaiming our money, there is no way for, for us to basically reclaim our sovereignty. And as, mm-hmm. as long as we basically depend on these particular folks or this money that's, really, that's made by someone else again, right? We could never somehow, I think, like really gain full sovereignty. So how do we basically get back to the state without necessarily like having to unravel a lot of that happened, a lot of the things that have happened in the last, let's say, century or so, right? Because of course, like between slavery and and the colonialism and all these things, right? It's almost like all these setbacks. But even besides that, how do we still just go back to the source or go back like to a, a, even a plain level field where we can basically build like like from that particular level? That's really what I'm trying to figure out actually, how we, how we can do that. It sounds like it's even difficult to unravel what the Senegalese identity is because of, you know, all the, uh, I mean, and you would think that it would be more free after say like 1960 when you get your independence, but the monetary imperialism still sort of has this like cultural effect where, you know, it it sort of penetrates and you you can't unravel this. It's, as you said, it's a one-way function. It's now something completely different. different. Exactly. And 
And like, what do you even do with it? Because you you had this sort of like weird love hate relationship with your own culture because so much of it is, you know, imperialistic. Yes. But you know, there are parts of it like it seems like a very sort of like complicated, you know, mixed feeling kind of thing with your own culture, which yes. uh, which is not something that I think Americans necessarily would understand. Understand exactly because it's a really complicated again situation again, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Because we understand that we need to like develop ourselves. We understand that Africa mm-hmm. is like maybe at least fifty years behind compared to like the mm-hmm. US or or Europe. But actually, what it means also is that like there's tremendous opportunities for people to build things and like solve particular problems, even like actually enrich like enrich themselves while basically solving mm-hmm. these big problems, like right. Mm-hmm. And so the money again, like because we, we got to figure out a way to like I said again, like how do we what how do we tackle this? Because the money has like really like intrinsic problems actually with it itself, right? If you look at like, uh, again, I said earlier that actually money is pretty much technology, right? And whoever controls the technology has a better insight as to like really what's happening, right? And I'll give Mm. you like a simple example. If you look at basically like Africa, we understand that there's huge corruption there that exists. We we, kind of like lie lie to ourselves or whatnot, right? Coming from the politicians, coming from like the the people in power or whatnot, right? Do they take a lot of the money that's not theirs? They take a lot of money in the country. They're buying stuff like in foreign countries, in Switzerland, in Europe, like castles or houses or real estate or whatever else, boats, yachts and whatever, right? And we can Mm -hmm. always like find these things like through the Panama uh, papers or like this kind of leaks, whatever. But actually besides Mm -hmm. that, we don't really know. But who has actually knowledge of this information? That's France. Because actually France mm. prints this particular money, right? So France mm. basically pretty much knows exactly who's stealing what and how much and where. Where are they hiding it? How many members of the families basically are part of this whole deal? And who's pretty much like the kleptocrat part of the society in the French-speaking part of the world? Because they control mm. the money itself, right? Mm. So which means that actually our constituents will never go and try to fight this particular power because they know that they have information on them. Right. Mm. So you are not basically going to try to fight someone where we know that actually they can pretty much put you in jail or like, you know, you know, get you like overthrown mm. or whatever else it is. Right. Because they know exactly what, how much money you stole and where, where actually where you're hiding it because they know exactly where the money is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So actually, so, yeah. Actually, yeah so, 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 so knowing that we know that actually at the core, this particular money is even corrupt from the people who made it or the people at top who basically use it. Right. So, mm. and I don't want to like, I know like we know like all of us like, like really, working Bitcoin and like we're trying to find like use cases and all these things, whatever, right? And I, I don't think actually who said it actually. Maybe actually it was, uh, uh, what's his name again? Burke's Minster Fuller, the creator, uh, Burke Minster Fuller, actually. I, I got to like, check out his mm-hmm. name, right? But like mm-hmm. what he said, I think it was that actually when you have like existing system that's pretty much corrupt, but that's actually such a, such a also like, like ginormous, like 900 pound gorilla in the room, right? What we do is pretty much like maybe create a parallel system that's maybe that actually doesn't, doesn't have any, anything to do actually with the, with the thing that's already there, maybe correct. But maybe actually this parallel system can like maybe benefit from the older system that that's, that's already there. But the idea is mm. like create something maybe that's new, that's more exciting, something that's more, how do you say, more like you can like maybe transform and mold into something that you want to see for the future and leave the old system behind. Because the system, again, like I said, is just corrupt at the core. Mm. And I hope it makes sense. So like a full version upgrade instead yeah, of like yeah, a point upgrade yeah, or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, because it sounds like, uh, you know, a lot of people there are already sort of like invested in the CFA system. Mm -hmm. So there's no real 
motivation to change the system, even though it would be much better for the people. So let's go back a little bit Mm -hmm. and tell us about some of the ways in which, you know, these 15 African countries get screwed over by the CFA. Like, what are some things that happen to you, like, uh, that you can talk about that you've experienced? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 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 I mean, like, one of them pretty much, like, is, like, really uh, something that I like, like, leave it myself, actually, like, personally, right? So in 94, when I finished high school and I was, like, about to go to college, actually, I had two options. I had I already had, like, a pretty much set university deal package to play basketball and to study, actually, mathematics and telecommunications mm-hmm. at the University of Metz in eastern France, right? Mm-hmm. right? Or actually, right at the German border itself. But me growing up in, in Senegal, I knew about the histories of racism in Europe itself, Right, because actually, mm. a lot of my uncles, like a lot of my people that I know, their brothers or their older brothers, whatever, a lot of them actually ended up going to Europe to go to, to go to like for like higher education for university degrees or whatnot, right? But I've also known, like growing up, listening to the, like those horror like racism stories with Europe and everything else, right? So I never wanted to go to Europe, and also like growing up mm. in the '90s, also like I was a big actually fan of Michael Jordan. That's really my idol mm. and my hero, and <laughs> I wanted to be like this person. I literally wanted to be like Mike. You know, because again, it's a guy that looks like me, kind of, you know, I'm tall, I'm like mm-hmm. dark skin, kind of like same complexion mm-hmm. a little bit. And I played basketball all the way through, all the way throughout high school itself. Right. And I really mm-hmm. modeled myself at this guy that I saw just kicking ass on the court itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And actually, the attitude actually, I still carry it to, to this day, like uh, for myself, like just, you know, like just to actually through life itself. Right. Being able to just like conquer things or whatnot. Right. So growing up there, like I just wanted to like really come to the United States. So. Knowing that I had a backup plan, I just asked my dad to basically help me go to the United States, right? Because mm. to me, like, looking at Michael Jordan, I, I just felt like I can succeed in America somehow. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't actually, I don't even know actually how to explain it, but that's really how I, how, how I really felt like seeing this guy, right? And I was always like a big, um, like a fan of computers and stuff because I, I actually didn't know what they were. It's just that when I was mm. in high school, like I'm sorry, when I was in primary school, I went to like a field trip to one of the teachers school, uh, school teachers thing and I saw a computer for the first time in my life and I just like was fascinated and like enamored <laughs> with this thing and I didn't, didn't know what it was. I used to literally buy magazines that had computer photos on the covers just to kind of uh-huh. see what it was magazines in like in Italian in foreign languages in English I didn't even actually understand English but I just was like fascinated with these things actually right and it's mm. crazy man to this day actually that's like I have, I have the same fascination so I mm. ultimately like um, my uncle was doing his uh, master the, the last semester of his MBA in Kansas and so my dad reached out to him and say, actually, he was my uncle, but he was the, da- uh, the, the husband of my uh, mom's uh, sister. And then mm-hmm. he reached out and asked, asked, asked him if he could help me, maybe like find an inscription, like find a, like, uh, sorry, a, um, a thing to the uh, university. To, for me, a to scholarship to, or something. Yes, maybe? actually, like even actually, like even the admission actually, just to be admitted in the university itself. Right? Then I mm-hmm. go from there, then go to the embassy to ask for a visa. Right. Mm-hmm. My uncle was able to help me get it, get an actually uh, admission letter, and then I went to the actually embassy to find basically to able to like go to the United States. So I went to the embassy. Mm-hmm. And put all my paperwork together, everything that I had, you know, by myself. I was like really young. I, was, I think I was eighteen, and I give I give them my paperwork, and they say, yeah, but sure. Like they asked me what I wanted to do. I said, yes, I want to go to the United States. I want to study computer science. I want to play basketball. All these things, blah blah blah. The guy was like, yeah, that's nice, that's fine and dandy, but you don't have enough money. I said, yeah, what? He's like, yeah, because you, the, the, the university, American universities are very expensive. They ask for this much, you only have this much, blah blah blah. And I'm actually let me tell you, actually tell you how I got there. It's because actually mm-hmm. like. Out of like all the luck in my, <laughs> the luck in, in, in the world, right? So in 94, our money, the Frank CFA got devaluated by 50%. Oh, wow. As a matter of fact, right? So overnight, literally, the money that my dad saved for me to be able to go to college, right? Even doesn't matter if it was in Europe or to, to the US, that money guy 
got actually got cut by half because France decided that it was time to devalue the franc CFA because it would be better for these countries because their exports will be cheaper and blah 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 and whatever reason right and that's really actually one of like the 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 first like really my first like real life experience as actually like understanding the power of basically the franc CFA and actually how it basically affects the lives of the people who don't even control it themselves and me being the prime example Hmm. Wow. So uh, how did you like, and what happened then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. yes, it was like really complicated. Um, so yes, I mean like, but I'm talking about this actually in retrospect, actually, actually trying to understand mm-hmm. what happened actually, like why I didn't have mm-hmm. enough money to go to college and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I want to like, like, like actually frame it in that particular context. So what happened mm-hmm. was like, uh, so it was, I think I was there on, um, or either on a Monday or something like that. So the guy was like, well, you don't have enough money. You don't have anything else. Your parents don't have any more assets you can show mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. I said, yes, well, my dad actually had book rights in a math book that he wrote, like uh, with a bunch of people a couple mm-hmm. of years prior. And I said, actually, he gets paid like royalties every year. And I think like that would help me support me to help to go to college because my dad actually was like, he would basically help me with that money, like support me in college. So I went back mm-hmm. home. He asked me to come back. So I went back home and got all this paperwork for my dad's uh, uh, book rights. I didn't have, like, I got somebody to help me translate it in English, like really fast, actually. So if I actually like the translation, like I, I think in 24 hours and I took it, went back to the embassy And the guy looked at it and I wasn't, I guess he wasn't convinced. And I just like, I don't know. I, I, I actually imagine at this time, I, I don't even actually speak English, right? Mm-hmm. And I like tried to like really convey to him the idea that I need to go um, like, like in America. And the only option for, for him right now is to say yes. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the guy looked at me. <laughs> he said, come back on Thursday and get your visa. I swear to God. Oh, that is wow. exactly what happened actually to this point. And I'm telling you, I don't even speak English and I don't even know how I was able to utter these words because the, actually the, the interview is a little bit in French, but mostly in English because they want to know that actually uh-huh. you're competent to be able to go to uh-huh. this particular country. Um, right? I see. So I was able to like really like just like put some words together and explain actually why I needed to go to the United States. And I think I said something about Michael Jordan or computer science and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 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 right? And maybe the guy was like fascinated. They just gave me, actually gave me the visa. And then like, sure enough, the following maybe like 10 days, I was on my way to first to New York and then to Kansas to study, uh, start my uh, university degree. Wow. So, okay. So obviously you had this giant devaluation. How does something like that happen? Like what happens? Like, do they just say it's worth this many francs or dollars or something like that, yes, but now yes. it's half that? Yep, what happens? Yep, yep, exactly. So basically, so now France today actually is under the euro zone, right? So they use the, uh-huh. the euro as money, as, as, as money. But prior to the uh, joint uh, France joining the eurozone, they used to have their own money called the French franc itself, right? Mm-hmm. So the franc CFA was pegged against the the French franc for a particular. So how many French franc was a, was actually uh, you can basically redeem it for this many franc CFA itself, right? Which actually we can talk about actually later also like something really funny that that money is pretty much useless outside of these countries. If you go to France at the airport and try to like change this money, they won't even give you nothing. <laughs> you know, it's like really terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, so it was like pegged to like the, the French franc for a while for a particular uh, percent, I mean, like, a, basically, basically, like, renewable for a fixed amount. But then what happened was, like, uh, so French, at some point, decided that maybe our currency was too strong, that actually it will help, again, these countries, because the currency was weaker, like, help them, like, export better or whatnot, right? But mm-hmm. really, who does that really benefit? It really mostly benefits France. Because then what mm-hmm. happens is, uh, like, France can now buy, not only actually do they have the first the first bid option to buy these raw materials from these particular countries, right? So let's say if these countries, like, like find some uranium, um, I mean, uranium that actually enriches, like, uh, atomic bombs or whatnot, right? Like, mm-hmm. France basically gets the first dib to buy these particular 
raw resource or raw material at the best possible price in the international market first. Mm-hmm. Right? And then mm-hmm. maybe after, only after they don't want it, then maybe that country can take it and basically sell it in the international market for whatever price itself. Right? But France has, has always has first option to basically buy these particular goods. Now, also like devaluating this money by half makes the goods even cheaper from these particular countries. Mm-hmm. Right, so now, so now, France. Now you imagine, right? Like France doesn't doesn't produce none of these particular goods, right? France does. Mm-hmm. France has never produced gold in their life. They don't have gold in their resources, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But yet, the mm-hmm. French coffers have the, the one of the biggest, basically, storage of gold in the world, and most of it comes from these particular countries. Mm. Right, and then how do they get? Like I said again, get all this stuff right because that was part of their policy. I mean, their basically goal, I believe, in devaluating the franc CFA because then, I mean, I said not only basically France, but also the EU, as a matter of fact, also right, the European Union actually right can basically buy the raw goods and raw materials from these countries for really cheap. Mm. So, I mean, tell me about what Senegal looks like. Are there just lots of mining and farming and no, things like that? No. Or like, what are the raw materials just sort of like being harvested and going out to France and the EU? Yes. Or, I mean, is that the main industry there? Yes. Well, actually, well, okay. Well, Senegal is, a, let's put, actually put it in perspective. Senegal is a small mm-hmm. country, about like 17 mm-hmm. million people. And mm-hmm. I believe the size of the country is fairly close to the size of Arkansas the state in the United mm. States, right? Mm. And uh, like most of the African countries, it's mostly a agrarian society, which means that most of the people actually live from the land itself. And usually, and uh, the, I, I believe the percentage is the same in Senegal, the rest of Africa, which means that actually more than 60% of the people who live in the country itself live off the land, right? So through mm. agriculture, through like uh, like uh, and actually other like um, other activities like like uh, related to agriculture, right? Then of course you have like now resources as well, like raw resources, which means that we have like a we have one massive gold mine which is on the east of the country, which is pretty much like exploited or like unexploited, but it's actually like ran by a Canadian company actually called the Teranga mm-hmm. Gold Company itself. But you also have other like smaller mines that have other like resources like zircon or uh, phosphate or like other like mm-hmm. resources actually that are there. But less than other countries, let's say like the Congo in Africa or, or like the CAR, right? But we mm-hmm. still do have resources. We also have like a, a huge one of the world's leading producers of like of, of, of also peanut, you know, like a peanut mm-hmm. uh, the shell. Peanut shell mm-hmm. that we have also have peanut butter and all the things. Actually, all these things that come from peanut itself. We also have mm-hmm. a huge fishing industry because Senegal is like right on mm-hmm. the coast itself, and our actually mm-hmm. Atlantic Ocean is very fertile for fish or whatnot, right? So we actually have a huge fishing industry. And as of late, we also found huge, basically deposits of um, not deposits, but like reserves of uh, natural gas and oil, which will start, I believe, producing as of like 2023 but huge reserves basically off the coast of uh, Senegal. And it's becoming like a huge deal because, of course, Europe, uh, with the war happening there, are coming to Africa now to find other sources of uh, distribution. Oil and gas, Oil and gas, exactly. So it's happening actually in Israel right now. Wow. Well, so is your main trading partner then France mostly? Uh, Is that the biggest trading partner? Or Okay. Yes. All right, that makes sense because they control your currency. They can do that. But by devaluing they're devaluing the labor costs of all of these inputs yes is that, is that what's happening exactly exactly and also like not even actually do they devalue it but they also have like kind of like direct access to these ports and all the services that are in the country itself because there's one company called bolore i don't know if you can check it out later but it's, but it's b-o-l-o-r-e uh, Bolore, mm. like X with accent only. Bolore basically uh, they build a lot of like logistics and infrastructure companies in West Africa, like for these countries, and especially the countries that have like huge access to ports, 
right? Mm. So with these ports, they're able to like really tag into like these countries because they control exactly access in and out of these countries of these particular goods. And they know exactly what's being sold and what's, what's basically being, being moved around. And also, not, not, not only that as well, they are also like really involved in like a like huge corruption cases, right? And Bolloré recently, for the first time ever actually in the history, was finally actually convicted by an international court of actually corruption, of paying basically mm-hmm. people in this particular country to, to be able to like move goods and get get like preferable deals or whatnot, right? So again, like it's all like, it's, it's almost like a mafia kind of system, right? So again, they, they devalue this particular currency, they devalue the price of goods, they devalue the price of services, and they also like control access to the services and they're able to basically get these services out in a simple like and controlled manner and get it back to their own countries and to benefit their own, their, their, their own economies. And I hope to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it really is kind of monetary imperialism in the very strict sense. And that's they are using the money to get cheaper goods than they otherwise would. Yes. And they're able to extract the resources of Senegal for the benefit of France yes. while hurting the actual people in Senegal. Is yes. it, I mean, that's exactly. what it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. Okay. But now, actually, so things are like this, of course, uproar everywhere. And like mm-hmm. you said, like, who's the main trade partners? Now, okay, you know, so France was there, but obviously now China is coming strong, mm-hmm. right? Like, actually, mm-hmm. in Senegal itself, like, there's a huge Chinatown, which is amazing. I went there last time. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? This is crazy, actually. We have, like, a huge <laughs> Chinatown. And we also have, of course, like, America also, like, is a huge trade partner, mm-hmm. obviously, because America also, like, needs resources and everybody needs, like, and, of course, like, Africa is one of the biggest, like, breadbaskets of the world because mm-hmm. most of the arable land, actually, in the world for agriculture is in Africa itself, right? So it's very, mm-hmm. very important. So we have France. We have China. We have uh, the U.S., obviously. But, of course, now we have a big player called Russia. And that's like really mm. the 800 pound gorilla in the room itself because Russia is making a lot of moves on the military side of things, on like really other, like basically like trying to figure out how to fit in the whole African narrative. So they, they are becoming a trade partner as well. Mm, interesting. Yes. Well, it is, we've sort of like moved if we sort of look at it, everything so, uh, from like a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. We move from sort of like physical to monetary imperialism mm-hmm. as a, and you, for the you know a country that essentially is doing the imperializing, they get a lot of the same benefits as what it seems like, yep. and you know they essentially get cheaper goods. Yes. I want to talk a little bit more about sort of like the movement of labor mm-hmm. because I know there's like a significant number of people that immigrate from oh, these yes. CFA countries over to France, yes. and we know that France, at least the native population is not reproducing anywhere near fast enough. So they need this infusion of extra people in order to even like keep up their society. How does that work? And what does that look like on the ground? Sure. So this is a really complex, um, really complex and sad story at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, like, like Africa is not really poor or, because people are lazy or this and that, like like really this actually stereotypes about Africans, right? Africa is poor because it's overexploited, right? Mm. So then what happens actually also, it becomes like the situation becomes very dire because the local, the youngsters or the young population does not see opportunities locally itself, right? Mm. And of course, because of media, because television, because of movies, because also like unfortunately how also people who go to these particular places and come back home and try to front and like really money or wealth or whatnot, right? People have like really a wrong idea of basically Europe, right? And mm. they are a lot of people are dying in the ocean 
trying to cross uh, from Morocco and trying to enter Europe, unfortunately, mm. right? Mm. And it's a really sad situation because Africa has the youngest population in the world, right? In Senegal mm. right now, the average actually age, I believe more than 55% is 19 years old. In mm. Africa, actually, in the, by, I believe by 2050, the average age is going to be about 14 years old, right? Oh, we wow. Have, we actually, we have the youngest population in the world, but yet we have the least amount of opportunities, basically, to keep these young folk, folks in, employed and for a better future or whatnot, right? So a lot of mm. them are choosing to die, to go through the desert and cross through the desert to Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, and try to cross the uh, Mediterranean, basically, to go to Europe and like with these makeshift boats. And there's a lot of horror stories, people dying in there, people being enslaved in Libya. Have you seen that? stuff mm-mm, right yeah mm-mm. so people basically who are trying to cross from this sub-saharan africa to go to europe right usually what happens is mm-hmm. they end up in the wrong hands in a desert mm-hmm. right and desert actually is a huge place for anybody to find you there right and mm-hmm. people get enslaved i've known people who are basically who, who actually who were caught in libya and they were basically enslaved and used to clean weapons mm-hmm. imagine that right so you basically have like you you basically have a debt because if people basically hold you and say okay well unless your family can call and send us this money we're not basically going to keep you free but while you're here we are basically fighting like this war in Libya or whatnot, right? But we're going to keep you here and you're going to basically clean our, our actually our weapons every single day. We'll show you how to do mm. it or whatnot, right? I mean, really things and like really horrible, like exploitative and modern day slavery things happening. Really, I mean, horrendous stories, right? And one of them actually, you and I, I believe, heard actually during uh, in Oslo, during the Oslo Freedom Fest, mm-hmm. right? With Temu, mm-hmm. right? Temu, like the story was so, I was so, man, heartbroken because again, he was in Ethiopia or Eritrea. He was trying to basically go somewhere through Egypt to basically find a better life, a better opportunity. And they get caught up in that particular situation, right? Mm. But me, that travels again, right? It saddens me because, and I don't want to like disparagingly about Europe. Yes, Europe maybe is developed because obviously they, mm-hmm. they, they pillaged the African continent from slavery to colonialism, whatnot, right? But there is absolutely nothing in Europe itself, right? Mm. I've traveled extensively in Europe back in 2019, right? I went to Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Stockholm, France, and all these places. But what it is, is like the first thing you notice actually between Europe and Africa is that Europe is an aging population. It's mm. a dying population, right? Like one, mm. some places that I went to, like Poland and all these places, I was in shock because I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Actually, I never really paid attention to this thing. In Africa, these kids everywhere you go, Mm. Everywhere you go, it's little babies, little kids, and running around everywhere, man. You go in Africa, man. Actually, that's wild, you know. In Europe, you don't, you basically barely ever see kids. So he said, okay, well, this is an aging population. They don't even have their own natural resources, right? I mean, how are they going to fare in the future? We see basically the same thing happening in Japan because they don't have any kids anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what they want to do actually for them is that they want to put a blockade in the Mediterranean and basically stop the illegal flow of illegal Im- immigration or whatnot, right? You know, mm. and like uh, and like really block these kids from like coming because to them actually it's like low skill labor or whatnot, right? But what they want is control, basically, like more like a brain drain. So more mm. actually give access or visas to the the smartest folks in Africa, the youngest ones, right? The brightest one, youngest, most promising ones. We give them basically visas. We bring them to our countries. We give them like decent access to like a decent life, whatever. So hopefully they stay here and basically help us build the future instead of basically going back to their home countries. Hmm. Right. So a lot of the best and the brightest essentially yes. go into France from all of these yes. countries. I yes. guess there's so you get the labor drain, and yes. what do they do once they're in France? Like uh, so what, them, what what opportunities do they have there that they wouldn't at home? Yes, exactly. So so what it is is like usually they 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 want blue collar work, so like uh, tech work mm-hmm. or whatnot, right? Because these countries kind of still, I mean, they still you know developing in the form of AI, big data, like uh, fintech mm-hmm. payments or whatnot, right? So 
and and also like so like these kids are actually really finding ways to like really get this high paying jobs because nowadays when you work in tech when you when you start I mean, especially mm-hmm. software engineering or this some kind of STEM kind of a degree you actually get you get paid paid very well in these particular countries right so mm-hmm. what it is like usually sometimes these people when they go they don't want to go back home because life mm-hmm. is comfortable right and I understand because Africa is. I wouldn't say like it's a rough place, but it's just it's, it demands much more of the person to be able to basically make it and maintain there, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea is like like we owe it to ourselves to go back and share information and work and share our work ethics that we learn from these other places and our insights and how we can how we basically see things from the outside and help the continent develop itself, right? So that's unfortunately the sad actually thing side effect about that is because a lot of people basically because of the brain drain they go to Europe they get married they get comfortable they get used to the conveniences of the of the modern world itself, right? And it's very hard for them to go back home. Mm. And I see it everywhere. Yeah. And this is, I mean, the dynamic you're describing mm-hmm. is almost exactly what happens from Central America mm-hmm. to the United States. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people, you know, the best and the brightest, you know, find legal ways to get yep. in. But there's also like a large group of illegal immigrants that come in exactly. and they, they end up. What's interesting about what you said is a lot of the immigrants end up doing blue collar work, yes. like, you know, building roads or, you know, houses or something mm-hmm. like that. And the thing that I find really sad is that they're doing it in France yes. instead of their home. Yes, yes, right? yes, <laughs> like exactly. You could, you could be building infrastructure, you know, in Senegal and making Senegal better instead that is, they're making France that better. That is exactly what? That is exactly yeah. actually. You actually you are you are one hundred percent on the like like right, uh, Jimmy. That's really what it is, right? And I, I heard it once before, and actually I don't know who, I, who, who actually who I heard it from. Actually, why myself uh-huh. I'm going back to Senegal itself, right, to get established uh-huh. and like established. Like, I'm, and I've been working towards that like for the last decade or so, right? My brother is there, my mom is there. I have like a local infrastructure. I'm like really helping educate, do all the things locally, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like to, to like it's like this, man. Like for me, and it, there's also like different levels to this thing. To me, it's like why would I want to be a second-class citizen in any, any other country rather than mm-hmm. being like a first-class citizen in my own country. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, and, and actually, mm-hmm. and it's much more even prevalent for, like for black people specifically, actually. And I'll that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to make this again, mm-hmm. bring this to like a ra- racial discussion or whatnot, right? But the idea is like, we know, I, like I said, I didn't want to go to college in Europe because I know about the racism there. Racism in Europe mm-hmm. is a very visceral type of racism, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they never had actually civil rights movements there. Mm. Right, they never had it compared to That's United right. States. Right, United States actually mm-hmm. had a civil rights movement like that happened here with the uh, with the uh, Dr. King and everything else. That's mm-hmm. actually why the United States is very very different from any other place actually in the world itself. Right. And that's why I said, mm-hmm. actually, black people in America are the richest black people in the world. And we need to basically t- take it upon ourselves to be leaders, role models, and help basically change the, the vision for black people in the world itself. Right. It's mm-hmm. very, very important. Mm-hmm. In Europe, mm-hmm. they never had like a civil rights movement. Or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So in Europe, like you can work hard, but you will never make it. Actually, it's, it's not like America. America, actually, I believe, actually, you can work hard here and really make it here, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, like the really the limit actually is like how hard you work and if you're offering a service that people need or whatnot, if you're solving a particular problem, right? In Europe, it's a little bit different, man. They really, I feel like people are being really held back because of the actually color of their skin. So I'm like, okay, well, if if that's the case, why would you want to stay in Europe? Why not basically go back for you, go back to your home country instead of like being a second class citizen, no matter how well you do, no matter how educated you are, no matter how many PhDs you can gather, whatever, right? They're always going to look at you as a second rate citizen, Mm. right? So why not basically go back to your home country and basically help contribute to the country, help like really bring it forward and actually bring respect for black folks all over the world, no matter if they are in Africa or anywhere else in the world. 
right? And yeah. to me, that's very, very important. And that's how I see it. Why, why would they want to stay and contribute to this part, to those particular economies that were like really enslaved us and, and really exploited us and not go back to your home country where you can really make a difference actually and leave a legacy behind, which actually you can never leave in Europe because why would you want to leave a legacy in Europe? For actually in a place, <laughs> actually a place where that has basically over, over the years exploited you and has, it is still exploiting you via this currency you don't control. Hmm. Well, that's interesting that you put it that way, because in a sense, what you said earlier is that you're kind of second class citizens in your own country, yes, too, yes. because of this monetary imperialism. Exactly. So in order to really make it make that choice a lot more, I guess, economically viable, mm-hmm. it would be second class citizen in France versus first class citizen in Senegal. Yes. You would have to throw off the monetary chains. Yes, right? yes, like absolutely, it's- absolutely, absolutely. But what it is, is like to me, if you are like, let's say you are like more more of a global person because maybe you were born in Senegal, but you actually grew up somewhere else in the world or whatever, right? When you go back actually home, you have like a, a, a better perspective of the world itself, right? And you can also like really help like earn money from anywhere else in the world. And actually I go mm. back because I want to touch on Bitcoin actually, actually what I teach right now to the kids that I mentor and everything else, right? The reality is that we have this monetary system that actually, like, like I said again, somebody can actually opt out of, or maybe can use it parallel to what, what they are, maybe another system itself that they want to use or whatnot, right? So mm. what's beautiful about actually like, uh, Bitcoin is that as like a software engineer, you can work from anywhere in the world. You can work from Senegal and actually earn this money from the global stage itself, mm. right? So it basically changes the game itself, right? Because now you don't have to actually rely on your local environment to earn money or to earn wealth itself. Right. Mm-hmm. You can basically have this particular skill that's actually desirable, like globally on a global stage on this particular monetary, actually monetary system that ties in the entire world. It's not like a, mm-hmm. the Frank, the Frank CFA or whatnot. Right. This is a global monetary system that's not owned by anybody. And it's also an mm-hmm. asset that actually you for you can have in your own country, regardless of actually what's happening. And that's actually, that is unconfiscatable money. Mm-hmm. Right. So to me, it's like what it is, it's like we again say, okay, well, you maybe go back home. And maybe you don't know actually how you can, can like really, be, again, become a first-class citizen because, again, another entity is kind of controlling your money or whatnot, right? But because of your knowledge of the world itself, right, you can actually help plug in to this new monetary system itself. We actually, we can basically build maybe a foundation for a better future. And that's, actually, that's how I see it, actually, when you go home, right? Because now we actually have options. Hmm. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the way the monetary imperialism works mm-hmm. is that they get the raw material mm-hmm. from places like Senegal, mm-hmm. but all of the sort of like secondary processing and things like that happen elsewhere. That is, and that that's is. where a lot of wealth is gained yes. is in, that, in, in that additional stuff. So, I mean, it would seem to me that if if you didn't have this monetary disadvantage, that you could, you know, build, you know, gold processing plants, uranium processing exactly. plants, and well, that wasn't the goal. all this other stuff. And, you know, may- maybe even like uh, oil refineries or natural gas pipelines and stuff like that. Do it yourself. And then now you capture a lot more of the value instead of letting, you know, all of these other countries that are exactly. taking these raw materials and, exactly. and converting it. But then again, you know? yeah, but then again, it goes back to Europe again. Like, and I feel like, and I, and I feel actually this was pretty much deliberate. It was done in, in a deliberate manner, right? Because mm. what it is, is like, they never wanted for Africa to basically industrialize. So Africa like mm. missed the entire industrial revolution. 
Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't have enough power, no enough electricity. We didn't have basically industries to like really build like huge capacity industrial kind of uh, systems or or like, basically processes. Well, right? you, you need really large power plants. That's right. That's right. That that's what you, you need. Those, right? There's none of that. I mean, I think power is still in, intermittent it in is, most it of is, Africa. It is right? right. But then again, we never really actually invested into like like building like hydroelectric power, like the like mm-hmm. the huge river in Congo. Like uh, from, what, mm-hmm. from what I understand. That the river in Congo can pretty much power the entire continent of Africa, right? Oh, if it wow. was actually really <laughs> built into like the, the particular dam I should need to be built, right? But again, this infrastructure was, was never built itself. So the Europeans, like really, what they did was like pretty much like, again, they will basically like the, story, the famous story of like this, these uh, cocoa farmers in, in mm-hmm. the Ivory Coast and Ghana, right? People who mm-hmm. basically grow co- cocoa and never tasted chocolate in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's not wild, right? So this person is basically making <laughs> this making this raw material that is basically selling for pennies on a dollar on in the national market. These basically people in Switzerland like take this material and make this really expensive, of course, delicious kind of a chocolate or whatever, right? And they sell it all over the world. And they're selling it for so much that actually even the farmer who basically grew the particular raw material that cannot, cannot even afford to taste basically the finished product itself. Which is wild to me, right? But but actually, also things are changing in Africa. If you notice this year mm-hmm. in uh, 2022, I believe the president of Ghana went to basically Switzerland, and for the first time in the history, Ghana is no longer basically uh, supply cocoa to Switzerland. First time ever, they basically asked them and say, "Hey, if you want to partner with us, come to Ghana and build cocoa factories or cocoa, uh, cocoa manufacturing. I mean, like, sorry, chocolate manufacturing, like um, mm-hmm. uh, factories or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And work with us with our raw material instead of us taking our cocoa and selling it to you for you to make this very expensive chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, uh, I believe, like, because Ghana are the world's biggest producers of uh, combined of cocoa actually in the world." As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. right? So they control these particular raw materials, right? So I think like slowly but surely it's happening, right? So because now when you have like when you have also like not only France itself, but also when you have like people coming in and trying to mingle in the, in the part like China, you know, Russia, and mm-hmm. India, and, and the US itself, like all these actually big powers, even actually Brazil itself, right? This part of the BRICS. Mm-hmm. So these people are coming there and so it's becoming a more of a, uh, how do you say? They, I believe like it's going to become more competitive and I believe actually in the long term it's better for Africa actually anyway. So that's how mm. I that's how I see it. Mm. Yeah. So hopefully, so hopefully yeah, they bring in again more, more manufacturing locally. But I believe as these nations basically kind of hold their ground as far as like shipping the raw materials. Hopefully, there's more manufacturing that happens in Africa, like for the for the, for the long term. Yeah, I love where that's going. Mm-hmm. The thing that seems to me the most difficult, and this, this is something that I, I've talked to some other mm-hmm. people about, is that. In order to have a manufacturing base, mm-hmm. you need consistent power. Yes. You can't have intermittent yep. power. You yep. need yep. and the thing in Africa that se- that seems very underdeveloped is fossil fuel. Yes. Right? Yes. Like just uh, natural gas, coal, oil. Those things power not just electricity, which is of course very important, but you know, transportation, you know, heating things up. If you want to do any sort of like steel manufacturing, yep. you need insane amounts of yep. coal in order to get yep. things hot enough yep. so you can you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that part seems to have been particularly restricted by Europeans, uh, largely on this sort of like, hey, you need to be green. And, you know, despite the fact that we 
ran on coal for over a century, you're not allowed to do yes. it. Or they, they sort of like <laughs> look at guilt you into not being able to do it, even though it's very reliable. Yeah, but look at Germany. Look at Germany. Germany's going back <laughs> to coal after all these years. After all these talks yeah. about green stuff now, because of the war, mm-hmm. because basically Russia is cutting off the gas supplies or whatnot, they're going back to coal, right? But mm-hmm. then again, for us, like, like let's take the example of Senegal. They, they found this, mm-hmm. again, huge reserves of like petroleum and, and natural gas mm-hmm. and all these things actually over the course of Senegal itself, right? So again, mm-hmm. like I'm hoping that in the future we build more processing, like I said, locally, because again, for the industries to develop, like even for Senegal, we need a huge amount of electricity and a lot of it is still to this day generated by basically fossil fuels, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. right? So for me, I'm hoping that over time, like as basically these things get discovered and actually because now like Europe is coming to invest in Africa, obviously, because they need mm-hmm. the energy resources now because of the, because of the war. But, but they always want the raw materials <laughs> exactly. instead, right? Like you could build a natural gas power plant, yes, right? Yes, like yes, if you have yes. this reserve, yep. don't build a pipeline, build the power a power plant. plant. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then you could do it. But of course, like because they control the money, they're probably going to restrict the, you know, the funding of something like that by saying, well, you know, it's not green enough or you're not allowed to do it or we're not going to lend you the money. It, it just seems like a completely rigged game where, they prevent you from developing that. Exactly. like you want to. Exactly. And, and actually, if you look at it now, like, you know, I mean, like that's what's happening in the French-speaking countries in Africa. But if you look mm-hmm. at Nigeria, to me, Nigeria is a role model. There's a guy mm-hmm. by the name of uh, Dangote. Dangote, this guy who's like started like really small making uh, like with basically tomato farms, right? He basically made tomato farms and made tomato paste. And because a lot of people in Africa con- consume a lot of tomatoes and stuff like that, he made a lot of money with mm-hmm. that. And then over mm-hmm. time, he grew into like uh, this big energy tycoon which is actually really, to me, like really amazing, right? And now he's like really building the first like major refinery in Africa, in Nigeria. And it's like worth billions of dollars, right? Because they want to basically refine it, like make like refined petroleum and petroleum products in in, in Nigeria itself, right? And I I think like that's how it should be again, right? Because then you look at like Nigeria, you look at like Senegal and there's two different different countries. One speaks English, one speaks uh, French, one has their own money, one another doesn't. People can claim that, yeah, maybe the French money is better because actually it's less inflation because the, the Naira, is like really actually unfortunately plagued by like a huge inflation numbers or whatnot right but the idea mm-hmm. is like their money benefits them right they are building mm-hmm. things to basically and to, uh, for the future because it's never about today i mean yes of course today it's about like what we can do to survive today but we gotta look at like the long term and to look at the future especially for the young population coming in africa and putting these things into them like instilling these like these like these dreams and aspirations and knowledge about being able to like really have advanced studies in stems or whatnot right to be able to like really build those kind of infrastructure that Afri- Africa needs in the future. So I think like mm-hmm. we have to like inspire the kids to think more that way for the future, man, because it's going to be very, very important to build these uh, local infrastructure, like when it comes to like gas, energy, renewables, whatever basically it might be for energy. Because energy is the future, man. Energy is, every- energy is everything. Yeah, and you can't manufacture without energy, right. which is right. uh, which is the really interesting thing. The intermittent power is yes. almost always like associated with countries that don't have enough of it. Yes, uh, yes. You know, like manufacturing and energy and everything yep. else. All right. Well, so we've talked a lot about all of this. What are you doing in Bitcoin, and what are you hoping to change in? you know, Senegal and all these other countries that you're working with. What's your hope? What's your goal? And what are you trying to do? Sure. Yes. So um, right now, my goal is to bring about more education in Bitcoin, like at a micro level and also a technical level itself, right? 
I have an academy called the Bitcoin Developers Academy. I really want to apologize to everybody. It's still not live yet because we're going to be live in this summer because we don't have a front end, unfortunately. And I can actually explain actually what the delay was in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. But my goal actually, for me, like reading the white paper in 2011 in Las Vegas, Nevada, like I will never forget this, right? Reading the white paper and seeing like a gleam of hope for the African continent. Because when I actually read the Bitcoin white paper, I never even thought about America. I really thought about Africa itself. Right. Because that's where I'm from, because I knew that a huge number of the population is unbanked. I believe actually in Senegal it's less than one third. And it's actually a much smaller number, but let's say actually the one third of the adult population is banked. Right. So to me, it's like, well, what does it actually even mean? Which means that actually most people are dealing with cash. Most people don't have a vehicle for saving money, investing money, and all these things because they are not part of the typical financial system that you and I, let's say you and I here in America basically enjoy. Right. I can mm. easily go to a bank, open an account, open up a checking account, savings account, maybe investment account somewhere at Fidelity or one of these companies, you know, and like really make it easy for me to basically build for the future. But in Africa, again, we don't have that. Right. So not only actually we don't have a way for people to get banked, but then again, even if you are banked, you are banked in this particular like really shady and dubious currency that's actually less than a currency because it's not even accepted anywhere in the world. Mm. Right. So actually, what are you even saving on, actually, and all these things, right? So for me, like, so as I think about all these things that happened, like how my money was devaluated going to college and, and how, like, really all these pieces basically fit together. Like, like, like Steve Jobs beautifully said, right? Only looking back can we connect the dots, right? So I look back in my history because, again, I'm like an African-American. I grew, I grew up half of my life in Africa, half of my life in America, right? So I can get a chance mm. to basically see a lot of things from the outside looking in perspective. So looking at that, I said, okay, well, our money is obviously broken. And it's not mm. even actually money. It's, it's actually, it's not even our money. It's made by someone else, right? So I see mm. this technology that's actually really amazing again, right? Distributed technology that is not, that's actually truly neutral. It's not owned by anybody. And it's actually money, actually, this global distributed money, which can carry monetary value. I thought about Senegal. I said, okay, well, how do we basically plug in our, our citizens to this particular system? How do we also plug in nations in Africa, especially French-speaking Africa, right? So they can do business with each other, with each other, which is like, I feel like a, a much more transparent and useful system itself, right? So I said, okay, well, mm. how, let me basically educate myself with this stuff and see how I can build actually product myself and also like help educate others about this technology itself. And that's, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So what I'm basically working on is education first, which is the Bitcoin Developers Academy, right? And actually, usually actually inspired by your own academy, to be honest, uh, Jimmy, you know, <laughs> really, right? Because I really just like, like, like respected you, man. You're welcome, man. I, you know, again, I couldn't afford to come, come to the workshops, but I basically, the book was free. It was on GitHub. I was like, oh, this is amazing, actually. This is like really programming Bitcoin from scratch on, on free on GitHub. I said, let me check it out. So of course, when I get in there, I look at it, I'm like, oh man, this kind of kind of complicated because you kind of like need some mm -hmm. level of knowledge, uh, like a little bit, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I would say like, not like computer science, maybe like computer science level, but you need some kind of knowledge to be able to understand a little bit of Python and also like a mm -hmm. little bit of this math that basically underlines mm -hmm. this beautiful Bitcoin technology, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. from that, I said, okay, well, since maybe not, maybe like maybe some core developers need this information, but what about everybody else who just wants to build an application on top of Bitcoin? Right. Mm. So from there, I said, okay, well, maybe from on top of Bitcoin, maybe you don't necessarily need to know about elliptic curve cryptography right away. <laughs> <laughs> right. So maybe actually for you, the person you want to be able to leverage a library or like SDK uh, in this particular, particular situation, I'm basically leveraging BDK, the Bitcoin developers kit or the uh, LDK as well, the Lightning developers kit, uh, which mm. actually are, are both 
written in Rust because the Bitcoin Developers Academy is in Rust itself. And basically, why not use this to help folks like really onboard them really fast? And maybe like if you already have some kind of like background knowledge in maybe some dev apps, a little bit of a maybe um, web apps or like mobile apps, you could actually pick this up really fast and help like build the solutions for your particular community. And actually, so that's really actually how I basically went about it. So initially, when I actually did that, like designed the course, the course itself was simply actually a CLI, you know, application where you can basically like fire up BDK and like make a, a wallet from scratch, like kind of not from scratch because you are still using a BDK, which does like a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And you make a wallet and such, right? And you can talk to it via the CLI application. But then in the end, I said, okay, well, this is not enough. Right, because if the person wants to go actually and actually go maybe find a job or build the, like solutions for the for the particular uh, communities or whatnot, right? They need something that's more like a like a kind of a, like a, a a little more deeper stack, let's say, that mm-hmm. actually which mm-hmm. has like a, the CLI itself, but yes, but it also has a front end which is it could could be web or could be mobile, right? Mm. So initially, I was working on a mobile actually front end to basically for the students, but then I realized I'm like, okay, well, this is actually more complicated because they will need a web wallet and all these things because you, you have to be able to like uh, manage the private keys or whatnot, right? So it actually opens up like a whole another can of worms. So finally, actually, I basically settled on building a mobile wallet, basically using a BDK or whatnot. So we mm-hmm. show you how the like how the CLI works, which means actually you understand how to query the Bitcoin daemon, talk to it, send some comments to it, like uh, sign transactions. Constru- I mean, basically construct a transaction, but not like your course where you actually go from the, the byte level. We actually do mm-hmm. this more like a little bit higher level, right? So you use the library, you co- like construct a transaction, you sign it, you basically do what uh, that we need to do. Maybe actually it's multisig, maybe it's not. But we basically show you these differences actually and how basically the, the, the mechanics of Bitcoin work underneath the hood. And basically, once you understand that, we give you like a front end, a mobile, a mobile front end for you to basically build a mobile wallet. And then from there, you understand basically how what happens actually on your wallet when you do send, receive. Then you can understand the full stack from the mobile wallet basically to the CLI API level. Mm-hmm. So that's what we, actually what we're doing like right now. Right? <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> Sounds awesome. Can't wait for your site to launch. And, you know, I always try to, uh, you. you know, encourage all of the educators in this space because God knows we need a lot of educators. Yes. So can't wait for that stuff to come out. Where can people find this and where can people find you? Yes. Uh, so uh, the people can find me at the, on Twitter. My uh, last name and first name at uh, Twitter is at D-I-O-P-F-O-D-E. You can also like pre-enroll on the Bitcoin Developers Academy and we'll let you know like when it basically launches this summer. And otherwise, like on my, my Twitter DMs are always open. You can always like reach me through there or uh, through the Academy and or maybe the usual conferences or whatnot, you know. And if I can add anything, something really quick, actually, also, uh, Jimmy, before I leave here. So he asked actually mm-hmm. how I'm basically involved in Bitcoin right now. So I'm heading back to Africa. I'm heading back to this actually Central, Central African Republic because to tie into actually everything we talked about today, what I, what I realized today, I was wondering, I'm like, why did the CAR actually adopt this Bitcoin law? itself, right? Mm. So what I actually realized, actually, through some legacy information, doing some digging around, I realized that when actually when a French African nation sells goods, sells sells basically raw material or goods in the international market, and they don't get paid in, like, let's say, US dollars, denominated funds, let's say if they get paid in basically BTC, that nation in turn doesn't have anything to actually, doesn't have any obligations towards France to deposit that particular uh, let's say BTC to the French coffers because basically the French only handle like fiduciary money, like, you know, like the dollars or whatever else, yens or maybe whatever, whatever you know, or the monies, right? So I, was, I thought about this. I said, okay, well, actually, since actually this is very important, since also like a lot of African nations basically like rely on agriculture, like for the future, and they want to basically boost exports. 
So for these nations, like for them, again, to get around, from, like to basically maybe get away from the CFA, why don't they basically accept like more like BTC for their basically exports, right? Mm-hmm. I want to export maybe like maybe peanuts or bananas or mangoes from Senegal because mango, actually Senegal has some of the best mangoes. But how can I basically do it where even, even if I'm doing it internationally or when I do it like with my neighbors, like cross-border, cross-border like a, a commerce, how can we basically do it to use BTC in a way to basically make this, uh, those actually transactions a lot more fluid? Right, mm. because I feel like in Africa, a lot of startups are basically are focusing focusing on the end user itself, which is actually great. Mm-hmm. But I believe actually there's already like a lot of like uh, self custody wallets actually they work very well, like Moon Wallet or like Wallet. I mean, like Wallet Satoshi is more uh, it's like custodial, but a lot of these actually like wallets actually wallets work very well. So why basically focus on recreating the same experiences again, right? When we have actually things that are actually that are open source that already work well. So for me, I want to basically look at again how do we basically use Bitcoin as a way to uh, be advantage to like uh, African governments, African nations, and basically people doing international commerce to be able to like exchange goods and use a currency other than the currency of the colonial powers. And mm. that's how I see it. And that's what I would really want to help with right now. Specifically, I want to help basically these nations use BTC on a global uh, international commerce kind of platform itself. Well, that sounds amazing. And I really hope you can make you. some progress on that as, yes. you know, as we come into sort of like a newer world with, you know, not a unipolar world, but a yes. multipolar. All right. Well, thank you for, you know, this conversation. I hope my listeners kind of learned a little bit about like the injustices that are going on in Africa and, <laughs> yes. and why it's so undeveloped. Honestly, a lot of it's monetary. Man, so thank over, you. And over-exploitation. You're welcome, man. It's, yeah. just, it's just, like I said again, it's, it's over-exploitation, man. Don't be like, you know, these people, the African people, they this, they that, blah, 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 or it's yeah. a developer because that, because you don't know, because unless you've actually been to Africa, you, you actually, you, you really don't know. But only thing people should think about is that basically Africa is over-exploited and it's up to us, the people in the diaspora and the young folks to basically make a stance and really help change how people view Africa globally. All right. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Fode can be found at at D-I-O-P-F-O-D-E on Twitter and BitcoinDevelopers.academy online. Until next time, fiat, though, and the est.